Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It's good to be with you again. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to our website, johnwarrenmedia.com, for more information about our work. Feel free to send along a comment on our contact form there, or you can simply send an email to john at johnwarrenmedia.com. It is such a joy to hear from many of you. It's just encouraging. We have data now, as I've mentioned before, for this podcast, and I'm shocked at the hundreds of you who go to the effort to listen and subscribe on a weekly basis, thousands over the course of months and a year, and uh, the, the audience is just larger than than I ever thought. Uh, those of you in in other countries, my goodness, I had, I had no idea. Spain, uh, Australia, the UK, Germany. I don't want to leave any of you out because uh, you're all very special. Philippines, uh, uh, just just many, many listeners throughout the world. Please tell your friends about us. Um, uh, they, this this podcast is 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 not funded by any corporate interest or any advertiser of any sort, as you know. And uh, we're doing some things to spread the word because we want to glorify God with this podcast across. A number of disciplines. I have some exciting interviews of some interesting people coming up, as we've done from time to time in the past, and uh, just are thankful for you and uh, appreciate your supporting the podcast by by uh, listening and and sharing it with friends. Feel free to uh, copy our our link from the website to uh, social media posts, and I'd, I'd love it if you'd uh, tag me on that effort. Um, so anyway, that's enough promoting the podcast. I'm I'm excited about this episode today. You know, we had a series, if you've been with us for a while, you know that uh, last fall we did a series on the book of Romans. And there's a topic that is addressed by Paul in there. There aren't, there aren't many theological topics that aren't addressed by Paul in there. But there's a problem that that we have as humans that Paul addresses that I I really want to just talk about today. And it's kind of one of those not what you think it is topics. And so I'm just going to blurt it out and stay with me because it is simply this. It is the how do we Christians, people in general, all people, how do we deal with the problem of evil in the world? Now, when I say that, those of you who are trained in, in philosophy and um, psychology, and probably theology and other disciplines, some other related disciplines to those three, you, you might think that the problem is evil is, is how does a God who's all powerful and all knowing and all good allow evil to occur? You know, how, how does a, how does a God who has the, these characteristics that seem to be on opposite sides of a coin, the all, all knowing and all powerful on one side and all good, omnibenevolent is the way to say it, I think. How, how does that God allow 
evil in the world? What, how can, how do we explain that? Well, I'm going to, I'm not arguing really, but I'm going to just throw out a fact. I think that I hope you can see with me through this medium. I believe there's a different actual problem of evil that we need to contemplate. And, and I'm really talking to Christians today. I'm talking to evangelical Christians. If you're not a Christian, you're curious about this. Just stay with me because you're going to be really fascinated at some of the depths of theology that we're going to talk about today. And it is counterintuitive uh, what, what we're talking about today. But the real problem of evil, in, in my humble opinion, goes something like this. How does a God who is righteous, that is, when we say righteous, I'm talking about an attribute of God now that, you know, he is morally right. Uh, sometimes we, we just throw the word holy out there, but holiness, God's holiness is really his being set apart. I mean, that his righteousness is part of that. But these words, uh, you know, very specifically describe something. His holiness is is being set apart from us, uh, transcendent, apart from us, uh, out of this world, not fully comprehensible, bigger, uh, uh, bigger than we can imagine, larger than than we can comprehend. That that is God's holiness. God's righteousness is His moral rightness, and He has far more of all of his attributes. He has his attributes perfectly. He possesses his attributes perfectly. So fellow feeble-minded humans, we cannot grasp fully God's character. We can touch it. We can taste it. We can get a sense for part of it. And it's just amazing. It's like standing. That's not like this, but this is the best analogy I can think of. It's sort of like standing on, on the rim of the Grand Canyon. You can only see a little piece of it. You know, that river down on the bottom looks like a little piece of thread. You can't, you just don't grasp it. And then you get home and look at the pictures you took and it's like, wow, those pictures didn't even, you know, capture as much as I saw and I didn't get to see it all. And wow, when they do that drone thing or helicopter thing and they take those pictures, man, you can just, you can just see it. Well, God's characteristics are something like that. But but today I want to address this this problem of evil. How how does a righteous God who is is holy and set apart? But how does a God who is morally right forgive unrighteous man and declare us, see us, reckon us, treat us as if we're righteous? How can a righteous God protect his righteousness, maintain his righteousness, I should say, not compromise his righteousness while reconciling himself to sinful people. Now, in, in just in normal society, we don't have a problem with this problem of people. This is not the problem of evil that most people struggle with, but it is a problem of evil that we should be struggling with, the very problem of evil, because most of us don't see God as highly, as set apart, as holy, as righteous as he is. We kind of think he's our buddy. And God is also eminent with us, close to us, near us, loving us. He first loved us, which is how we can love him. And so I'm not suggesting that God is not a relational God, that he's only transcendent and, and holy, set apart. 
but I am suggesting that that's what we struggle with. We struggle with having a high view of God and you can, you know, we have evidence of this all over the place. Uh, uh, Facebook being uh, Christian posts on Facebook being an excellent place to, to look for this. It's me centric uh, theology. What does God mean to me? What can God do for me? God is going to bless me. We've talked about that a lot in this podcast. Uh, we've talked about the give to get mentality that some pastors who frankly are, are, are predators uh, who are preaching this, this notion of if you, if you do what God wants you to do, he'll bless you. In fact, he's obligated to, you can, you, God is a cosmic vending machine and you get tokens and you can just push buttons and things happen if you do the things that are necessary to activate God. Well, that's, that's not the God of scripture. So today I really want us to address this, this, this challenge of how does a righteous God maintain, continue, protect his righteousness? How, how does he not compromise his righteousness while forgiving, while declaring sinful, unrighteous man to be righteous? It just seems impossible, doesn't it? And so we, we kind of have to start with our condemnation. And you remember from our study of Romans that Paul helps us with this. And I'm, I'm just going to read this because I, I, I find this to be fascinating. Paul creates a courtroom scene and it, it's an imperfect courtroom scene. I'm glad that we, I have some time to, to develop this because when we were moving through Romans, I really rushed. But if you, if you're not driving and if you, you have a chance to look at a Bible, I'm going to, I'm going to read from Romans three and I'm going to start in verse nine. I'm going to skip all those questions that Paul rhetorically asks his, his rhetorical foe, his Jewish person, his imaginary person that where he, he's asked, he asks these, I think it's six questions that are rhetorical and answers them. And, and he, and he's really, he's already talked about the, the immoral, uh, you know, he's talking about self-righteous man and he's talked about how we act out immorally and then with moralism and, and we all do both. And, and he proves that in, in chapter two of Romans, where he says, uh, judge not that you be no judge. You who judge practice the same things. And so we're, we're all indicted there. But, but then in chapter three, and, and he describes in chapter two what, what you'd have to do, what I would have to do to actually be righteous. If, if, you, if you want, he's really saying to the Jewish people, and, he's, and he talks to us other people, Gentiles, through the Jewish people, he says, oh, so you want justification by works. Let me show you what that standard would look like. Now, all of scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, we see lots of evidence of here's what justification by works would look like. We are all epic failures in that regard. We come up woefully short. And Paul just drives that home again. As he's prone to do, he, he kind of cycles through his arguments and he he kind of ups the tension as he goes. So he says in Romans 3, 9, I'm just going to read this section and I'm going to stop in a couple of places and just explain a couple of things. But he says, what then in, in, in chapter three, verse nine, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And then in verse 10, he says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Well, when we talked about this back in the fall, and you know, I explained that, you know, no, not one seems to be unnecessary, doesn't it? It's curious that he says a couple of places, 
later in, in verse 12, he's going to say, no one does good, not even one. And really it's this notion that, that he's just addressing everybody. Now he's been, he's been toggling back and forth in his comments to Jews and Gentiles a little bit, specifically addressing the Judaizers, those people who, who said that, that Jesus was, yeah, he was a historical figure. He was clearly very popular and everybody knew he had lived on earth, but he's not the Messiah. These Judaizers said he's not, he's, he, and, and he, and he's not, he did not provide justification by faith, justification. They wanted to hang on to the law. They want to claw back and have, they wanted Gentiles here. Here it is just to be frank. They wanted Gentiles to be circumcised before they could even be considered justified. And they wanted them to comply with the law. They, 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 they hung on to the law. They did not accept the fact that Jesus Christ had provided justification by faith. So there was a fair amount of arrogance among them. There was a fair amount of arrogance in, in, in Rome, but, but he says, none is righteous. No, not one. Then he says, no one understands, no one seeks for God in verse 11. And, and you know, I, I can't resist saying these so-called seeker churches, and if your church says I, I, we're a seeker church, I understand where churches and ministries get this. I will give you the benefit of the doubt and say those that sentiment is well intended. But Paul has just told us no one seeks after God. So we're we're missing something here. You're not going to make your church appealing enough to people to overcome this biblical truth that no one seeks for God. You can, you can have whatever form of worship that is designed to bring people in. And I understand there are conferences on this. Pastors dwell on this. There's nothing wrong with trying to make your church as biblical as possible, as even comfortable as possible, but you're not going to transform man into someone who seeks for God without God prompting the person. There are no seekers in our flesh. In our fallen sinful state, we are not seeking after God. The rest of scripture tells us again and again, we're haters of God. You, you can dumb it down all you want to make it appealing. You know, I even, you even hear sermons. I'm sure you've experienced this where you can't even tell what the pastor said. I mean, it felt good. It felt like a Hallmark card, but ah, let's don't talk about the tough stuff. Let's don't, you know, they would never read this list of 14 charges that Paul brings in this, using this legal terminology in, in Romans three. But so anyway, there's, there's no one who understands, no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. Wow. That's harsh. No one does good, not even one. If, if you have to start with, you've become worthless, and, and you know there he is again, no one does good, not even one. Not even, if you're thinking you're not in this group, Paul is talking in absolute language. If you're thinking you're not in this group, you're wrong. So the word worthless, the synonyms for the Greek word used there are useless, unserviceable, unprofitable. It, it's kind of like something that can't be repaired enough to be utilized for good. How about that? Together they have become worthless. Then in verse 13, he says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lisp. So now Paul is going to use body parts as metaphors. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to, so so you got throats, tongues, and lips, the venom of asps. An asp was a small snake. Reminds me of the coral snake, a small but lethally poisonous snake. 
during this day. So, so this is Paul, Paul is, is painting a picture here that we sin with our mouths and boy, do we ever, don't we? And he's saying that, 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 that the throat is an open grave. We use our tongues to deceive. So, so we're liars. We, we, we have nasty talk. We lie. And the venom of asps is under our lips. Then he goes on, verse 14, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and mis- misery. This ruin and misery has the idea of destruction or hardship or distress. Those are synonyms for the Greek word used for ruin and misery. Then in verse 17, and the way of peace they have not known. That's where our sin ends us. Then verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That word fear means that which may cause flight, reverence. It's not just just a little bit of reverence. It's, it's awesome reverence. It's deep reverence, powerful reverence. So this is the last of the 14 charges Paul brings against all mankind, all humans. This is, it's a jolting list. It, it leaves no room for my self-reliance or self-sufficiency. And then he does something kind of interesting and, and, and we're, we're headed towards this problem of evil, but think about this. He convicts us. We, we don't even bring witnesses into the courtroom. We don't testify for ourselves. Our attorney doesn't say anything. And then, and then Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So we're desperate. No one is justified. I mean, the, the, the condemnation in these two verses is, is, is just stark. So let's look at the rest. Paul is about to, to pivot here. And in, in, the, in the next five verses, I, I'll tell you what this is. But Romans 3, 21 through 26 is probably the most beautiful paragraph in all of scripture. Lots of commentators and theologians agree with this. Pastors agree with this. It, to me personally, it is among the most beautiful passages. Uh, some of the key words need to be explained though. It's a little complicated. Uh, some of the words seem like common words, but they have uh, some nuance in their meaning. And, and let, let's, just, let's just talk about that for a few minutes because here's, here's the beauty of, of, of this section. Paul says, listen to this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Now he's going to go on, but before we go on, let me just say this. I can't think of a more dramatic transition. You've, we, you, we have just been charged with 14 counts of sin. I mean, we, we are, Paul is brutally honest. No one seeks for God. We're all worthless. There's none righteous. No, not one. We just read the list. Don't need to repeat it. And then he says, you're guilty in verses 19 and 20. And then he says, but however, you know, a big, big transition, a huge turning, but now the righteousness of God think about that, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And then he says it again, 322. The 
righteousness of God through faith and faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe for there is no distinction. There he is again. There's no, there's no distinction among people, whether you lived on the wrong side of the tracks, the right side of the tracks, your ethnicity, your color of your skin, your height, your IQ, your education level. There's no distinct. He doesn't, he, he, he doesn't say just between Jews and Gentiles, although that's included. There's no distinction among people. No one, God has no bias. Think about that. None. He's not biased. This is one of his characteristics that I struggle most to understand because you and I have biases, don't we? We prefer certain people. Even if we think we don't, we do, don't we? Even if we try hard to treat people neutrally, we prefer people who are like us. But anyway, here's what he goes on to say. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every Christian I know, I think, has memorized that. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we've got this great transition, this dramatic transition. Paul goes from the darkness of our guilty verdict to the beauty of the gospel with these two simple words. But now, now think about this. The righteousness of God is neither an attribute of God nor the changed character of the believer. And, and we can, we can kind of prove this. We can, we can see this. If we look back at Romans one, he says, Romans one seventeen, for in it, he's just talked about not being ashamed of the gospel for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous or just shall live by faith. This righteousness of God is Jesus Christ himself. That's what the righteousness of God is here in Romans 3.22. He met every demand of the law for us in our place. Now, let, let's just look for a second at 1 Corinthians 1.30. I'm going to read it to you. If you're driving, keep your hands on the wheel. And because of him, because of him, he just said in the presence of God, so he's talking about God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then you know from your Bible, if you've studied it, that in Ephesians, and I'll just flip over there real fast, he's, he talks in Ephesians 1 about our being in him, in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. And then you go down in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. We are incorporated with God. This, this righteous with Jesus Christ, this righteousness that we, we get, it, it's a declaration. So to justify this, this word, this word for, for justified, it says uh, the, the righteousness of God, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God, 
through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction for all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This righteousness of God, he's talking about justification. He's talking about to justify us. It means to pronounce and treat us righteous. This, But it's a declaration. It's a reckoning. Treating is the key word here. He treats us as if we're righteous. He doesn't infuse us with his righteousness. It's not an attribute of God. We don't become some earthly miniature version of God. It is the way he treats us. And he's going to go on to prove this. But God justifies us and he treats us as if we'd never sinned. He treats us as if we met his righteous standard. Now, Paul is describing, as he says, faith in Jesus Christ in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He's describing repentance, that is, turning from our sin to God, not just a not just a changing of the mind, like some people define repentance, but it's a dramatic turning from sin and turning to God. He addressed this in chapter two. He mentions the word repentance, but it's implied here. It's 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 part of this this truth as we exercise faith in verse twenty two. What is faith anyway? Do you ever stop and just think, well, what is faith? Is it is it is it just simple belief? No, it goes further than that. It's it's trust. It's trusting. It's relying on something. So what Paul is describing is turning from self-reliance in chapters one and two to Christ, Jesus Christ reliance. Isn't that beautiful? When he says, for faith in Jesus Christ, he's talking about relying on him. And you have to ask the question, how, what? You're probably wondering, what is he trying to say? Well, he is describing our moving from self-reliance, that is trusting in ourselves, to Christ-reliance. And, and that is precisely what putting our trust in him looks like in concert with repentance. So that's what he means by faith in Jesus Christ. The familiar words, I, I just want to say this, and then we're going we're gonna to explain that a little more fully. The familiar words of verse 23, you know, we're, we're again, we're, we're pronounced guilty, profoundly guilty. The word glory, falling short of the glory of God, it's defined by scholars as demanding respect, the kingly majesty of God and the Messiah, and that condition with God the Father in heaven to which Christ was raised after he achieved his work on earth. It is sometimes just referenced as God's perfection or his perfect standard. This falling short of the glory of God, sometimes I rhetorically ask when I teach this material, how short do we fall? Incredibly short. It's not like we, oh, our best efforts on our best day, we're just almost there. No, there's, there's no one more frustrated than the person who believes in justification by works. I've got to try and strain and struggle to be good enough. Often that becomes frustrating and they just give up and deny the faith altogether. So we see God's glory referenced many times in scripture. We see it referenced when Stephen was stoned in, in Acts. He looked to heaven and saw the glory of God in the person of Jesus. He said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Uh, before that, he had said in verse 55, Acts seven fifty-five. but he full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then we saw it, we see it in the pillar of the cloud leading Israel in Exodus 16. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. We see the glory of God in the tabernacle, the temple of Solomon, the Mount of Olives and elsewhere in scripture. Paul is saying 
we do not measure up to the sinlessness of Jesus Christ in verse 23, when he says, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The Old Testament law is no longer God's standard of righteousness. Jesus Christ is. The person of Jesus and his perfect righteousness are our standard. And we simply don't measure up. That's what Paul is saying. We desperately require, need his righteousness. So the question for us to consider at this point is given this is just how short we fall. We should ponder that. And and we have to also think then, can God just lower his standard? And this is, we're back to this. We're really right on top of now this problem of evil. Can God just lower his standard? Well, let's look at it. Let's see what, let's see what Paul says. Verse 24, starting in the middle of a sentence and are justified talking about us by his grace. That's his undeserved goodness. The undeserved goodness of God as a gift, not worked for a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we are justified by God's grace. Our justification is without preconditions. We don't merit it. It is graciously and freely given by God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 24 uses a key term. It's redemption. Sometimes we think of it as, as just a purchasing. If you redeem something, you purchase it. If you, sometimes you buy it back. That can, that, that can, the connotation can be a, a buying back. In this particular case, it's, it's the, and, and Paul proves it throughout the rest of this letter in, in Romans, but it's the purchase or ransom for the freedom of a slave. Now, Paul continues to use this metaphor throughout the letter to describe our captivity to sin. Approximately 30% of the people in this church would have either been a slave or had a close relationship with a slave. Slavery, this kind of bond servant idea, was common in Rome. So this being slave to sin would, would, would be a, a great metaphor for Paul to use. So this word redemption con- conveys the, the metaphorical idea of freedom from slavery, paying a ransom to free a slave. It's the, it's the purchase of permanent freedom for a slave. We are freed from the captivity of sin by Jesus Christ. And Paul's going to, later, he's going to remind us, so, so now go live like you're free. In verse 25, he says, he continues the thought, whom, talking about Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. There's that word again, because in his divine forbearance, oh, that's a big word. He had passed over former sins. Verse 26 says, It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier, man, these words of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we have a problem of evil here that that is, and I've said it several times, how does a righteous and holy God declare man to be unrighteous first, like Paul did earlier in this epistle, and then declares him to be righteous without compromising his own righteousness, God's own righteousness. So th- this, isn't, this isn't the standard. Uh, you know, if, God is, if God is all powerful and is all good, uh, that, why doesn't evil exist? That, this isn't that standard problem of evil. It's, it's the tension that is resolved by the cross of Jesus Christ. 
All right. So this word propitiation, what does it mean? Well, it's interesting. And Greek scholars, I'm about to mispronounce something, but it's the Greek word hilasterion, which is the place of atonement. That is the place of reconciliation with God. It is the same word that we use for the mercy seat, which is the gold lid on the Ark of the Covenant in Exodus. It's the place where the high priest sprinkled the blood to atone for the sins of the people. Here's what it says in Exodus 25, 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length and a cubit of and half of its breadth. And then he goes on and down in verse 21, it says, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I shall give to you. The law itself goes inside the ark. Then in verse 22, there I will meet with you. This is God talking. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So this mercy seat was the lid or covering of the ark of the covenant where the law was contained. And it was also above it is where God met man. It was the place, as I said, where the high priest sprinkled blood each year on the day of atonement. So Paul is saying Jesus is the mercy seat of the new covenant. That's what he just said. This word propitiation, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Look at Leviticus 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. God instructed the high priest to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of his people, as you know. So the old Testament sacrifices were propitiations. The Roman pagan sacrifices, even to the pagan over a hundred gods. You remember they were intended to be propitiations They were intended to appease. But Jesus' propitiation made God the Father propitious because God the Father sent Jesus, God the Son, to the cross to make propitiation. God is both the subject and object of propitiation. Think about that. God both propitiates and is the one propitiated. This means, this word means, some people tell you that this word means expiation, just the removal or clearing of sin, which is remarkable, but no, no, no. It means so much more than that. It includes expiating this removal of just imagine it's, it's an accounting, a legal and accounting term. It's the clearing of our record of sin, but here's what else it does. It also includes this word propitiation should make us all want to cry. Tears of joy includes satisfying or appeasing God's righteous wrath and reconciling us to himself. So this is tremendous news. This isn't just a clearing of our record. It, 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 is, it satisfies or appeases God's righteous wrath and reconciles us to himself. This is wonderful news when we understand 
do do a word study on the wrath of God. You know, you can it, we can start with uh, Romans one eighteen that we've already read back in our study of Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It is God Almighty who nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. That was not Satan. It was God. God is going to be the one who is eternally damning people who reject Jesus Christ. God's wrath is scary, is horrifying. And propitiation involves appeasing God's wrath and turning it into favor. Favor meaning our reconciled, uh, being reconciled to him. He treats us as if we're righteous. He reckons us righteous. We don't become the righteousness of God like some cults teach. And this propitiation is available by faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, commentators agree that God presents Jesus as our propitiation for two reasons. First, to demonstrate that God is righteous, even though he left the sins before the cross unpunished. And then, then the efficacy of the old covenant, which was predicated on the cross, think, think about that for a moment. Without the propitiation of Jesus Christ, the Old Testament propitiation would not have been complete. Now, I grew up thinking those Old Testament sacrifices were complete in themselves, that they propitiated. The, the Old Testament sacrifices were validated or completed by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then the second reason that God presents Jesus as our propitiation is to demonstrate that God is righteous to declare sinners who have faith as righteous in verse 26. Jesus Christ is where God meets man and he is now our great high priest. You see this in Hebrews four, he says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession and that's verse 14 and 15. He says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect been tempted has in every respect been tempted as we are yet without sin. Chapter nine of Hebrews verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of his creation. So, to recap, this, this paragraph that we've just read completes our courtroom scene with Paul's use of legal language. It describes God as judge, but not the kind of judge we're accustomed to. This, this judge was the wronged party by us and our sin. Our judges don't do that. They recuse themselves if they're involved in something, don't they? Another judge would hear the case. But this, in this case, the little courtroom analogy that I like to use breaks down because God is the judge and he's the wronged party. And this word propitiation involves appeasing his wrath. Jesus Christ is our propitiation. We just read. He appeases God and reconciles us to himself. Our judges aren't the wrong party, but we know that God is. And, you know, we know that from other scripture, but I'll tell you a great place to look is David in Psalm 51, he says something like, against you and you only have I sinned, talking about God himself. But in this case, God pronounces us guilty and then sends his son to take our place, to be our 
propitiation. The other good news is God the Father's righteous wrath is appeased and it's turned into favor, but the righteousness of Christ is then imputed to us. That is, in this exchange, this great exchange, he takes on or propitiates our sin and clothes us in his righteousness. Or God credits our account with the righteousness of Christ. He treats us as righteous if we repent and have faith in Jesus Christ. He goes on in this chapter to talk about not boasting because he knows he knows who we are. Even in our salvation, we can boast. Even our theology, we can be arrogant. But I, I hope the gravity, the weight of this beautiful promise of propitiation occurs to us. This, this is a doctrine that is incredibly powerful. It is transforming. It answers the question, how does a, a righteous God who declares us unrighteous in our sin make us righteous without compromising his righteousness, his holiness, his being set apart? And he does that through his son, Jesus Christ. That's how he does it. He finds us in him. He sees us in him. He makes intercession for us today. I hope the beauty of these promises has not been lost on you through this format. I hope you'll study this section, this beautiful section in Romans 3, if you do and you get hung up on something or you say, wait a minute, what was that word propitiation? What does that mean? If you want to talk about it, you want to communicate, uh, send along an email to John at johnwarrenmedia.com. I would be delighted to engage with you to tell you more about the hope that lies within me. The beauty of this promise is it just makes me speechless, just much more so than the weight of sin in those 14 counts that we read early in this podcast episode. So next week we're going to be we're going to answer some questions, some some tough questions about this doctrine, about this truth, about our justification. What does it mean that we are justified? What does it mean to be uh, actually declared righteous? How short do we fall? of God's glory. We talked touched on that today. We talked about the real problem of evil and and I I want to just explain uh, again this what what's the real connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament? And then finally, what are the implications of our justification? What what does that mean that we're we're truly justified? by faith. Another way to say it is because we're so selfish. Sometimes a helpful perspective is what does that mean to me? What? That, that's kind of how we look at life, isn't it? What, what, what is this justification? by what, what, what does that entail? And what exactly does it mean to me? For those of you who don't have to know the why you probably scratch your head and like, why does he ponder over these things like this? Well, my brain just kind of works that way. I like to know the, the root or radical, first causes of things. I like, I like to understand the, the outline, the basic information, the foundation that, that, that helps us understand truth. I, I, I really can't, in my mind, I struggle with jumping to the end. Uh, my faith is, 
is is informed by scripture. I believe the Bible teaches us that, that, that we can reason, we can apply logic, we can apply argumentation to scripture, and scripture is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So it's not just another piece of literature that we get to critique. It critiques us. What a blessing. Thank you again for being here. Please like, share, subscribe to our podcast, Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcast. I've even signed us up now for some rather obscure podcast hosting platforms. If you're finding us on one of those, or I'll tell you what, if you find one that we're not on, uh, send along a comment uh, from our contact form, or you can email me at john at johnwarrenmedia.com. Thank you again for listening. I look forward to being with you again next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren. Thank you.